Well, we are in a spiritual war every day, but sometimes I think we would rather run from the fight than face it. It's not necessarily an unreasonable assumption to make that we'll be tempted to do that, to run from the fight. You remember Wilmer McLean uh, in the Civil War. Actually, the, the Civil War started in Wilmer McLean's front yard. I don't know if you know this. He lived uh, just, uh, just west of Washington, D.C. He had a big kind of big uh, farm there. He was a, an importer, a, a, like a grocery merchant. Uh, he was very wealthy. And so he had this kind of big... Uh, big property. And on July 18th, 1881, the Battle of uh, Manassas, the first Battle of Manassas, or the first Battle of Bull Run, depending on your relationship to the Mason-Dixon line. Anyway, first Battle of Manassas or first Battle of Bull Run, it happened in his front yard. It it happened. In fact, he had given his house to be uh, the headquarters for the Confederate uh, leadership there, and uh, a Union shell dropped right in the living room and like, you know, like blew blew up the living room. So uh, he was, he was taking, uh, his house took, took some hits. Of course, they stayed there with the Confederate leaders and watched the battle unfold on their property. And it was, it was a dramatic moment. And so he and his wife, they didn't have any kids at the time. I mean, they watched the war, basically the first battle in earnest happened in their property on their front yard. That was in 1861. Now, Northern Virginia was a site of a lot of the the early battles in the Civil War. And so by 1862, there was still a lot of drama in the area. And Wilmer's wife was pregnant, okay? She had gotten pregnant with her first. And so we don't have historical record of, of their conversation, but I think it went something like this, okay? She looked him in the eye and she said, no. And then he understood by that she meant, I no longer want to live in a war zone because I'm about to have a baby, we're out right? So they relocated. Wilmer very wisely, right? He agreed with his wife. And so they they relocated about 120 miles south to get out of the the fray and out of the battle. Now, listen, it's understandable. Is it not? Ladies, can I get an amen, right? I mean, get me away from the shrapnel, please. That would be a good thing. And spiritually, sometimes that's how we feel. We just don't want to engage. We just don't want to get our, our hands dirty. We don't want to be where all the carnage is. We just want to be left alone. We, just want, we don't want to have to struggle anymore. We just want to move away. We want to be safe from the front lines. That might look like hiding from the battle and hiding from acknowledging our sin. It might look like, well, perhaps justifying our sin, rationalizing it. And, and pretending that it's not sin, maybe redefining what sin is. Or it could just be ignoring our sin, just sweep it under the rug. I don't even want to think about it, right? But one way or another, we might run from the battle just because we don't want to be exposed. We just don't, we just don't want to deal with it. We're done. Now, here's, here's the tragic irony. So the McLeans moved 120 miles south to Appomattox County, Virginia. Any historians in the room? By 1865, three years later, guess what was the hotbed of the Civil War? It was Appomattox County, Virginia. And it was in that county that uh, the Union forces finally encircled and surrounded the forces of the Confederates with Robert E. Lee. And guess what? The Confederates surrendered in Wilmer McLean's living room. (laughs) So this guy and his wife, they moved 120 miles away to get away from the war, and the war followed them right to their new place. And so in some ways, it's a historical anomaly. The war started and ended there in Wilmer McLean's backyard. Well... What do we learn from that little historical, uh, little historical sequence? I think we need to understand that we cannot avoid this battle. You're, you're not running from this one. It will follow you. Sin will rear its ugly head in your life and in my life. And so 
yet in the midst of that, we can take heart. Because even though we can't avoid the battle, it turns out we don't need to. So if you got your Bibles there, look at verse 5 of 1 John chapter 5. Now, this is a transitional verse between the previous section and this kind of last big chunk of teaching in 1 John. So Pastor Josh was right to kind of include it uh, last week. And then we also discussed though that it's definitely the introduction to this next paragraph. So we're going to cover verse 5 again here briefly. But watch chapter 5, verse 5. John writes this. He says, Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, this is a rhetorical question, right? It's, it's making a bold, actually, statement about the fact that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you already have, and actually, you continue to have, victory over the world. And now, in, we have to understand that in light of what he just said in the previous section. Remember, victory over the world looks like obedience to God's commands, And he's just explained that obeying God's commands, it's not a burden to the believer. It's not a negative. It's a positive. It's not a weight. It's actually a calling, a new life. And so John says here, who is the one who conquers? Now, I want to highlight to you here in verse 5, that the, the verbiage there, the one who conquers, the one who conquers continuously every day. That's, that's the way it reads. The one who is continually in a state of having conquered the world. Who's that person, the one who conquers the world by following Jesus, by choosing to live in light of God's commands with a transformed life that John has been talking about for five chapters now? Who is that person? That person, the victorious person in this battle is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Last week he said it's, it's faith that wins that victory. Here he clarifies it's the person who has faith. It's, it's the believer So if you are a believer in Jesus, you need to know this. Today, you have conquered the world in Christ. Meaning, you have what you need to say no to temptation and idolatry and to live by faith-driven obedience. You are equipped for that life. You already have this victory. So we don't have to fear the battle and we don't have to run from the battle. We already have victory in this battle. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it is. I mean, the language is appropriate. It is a struggle. We do need to conquer the world in rebellion against God, meaning we do need to struggle and say no to temptation and watch out for our idols. But at the end of the day, you've got to know this, that it's faith in our sure Savior that leads to sure victory. Faith in our sure Savior leads to sure victory. It's because of the Son of God that we have this victory daily. So where's your battle? You gotta ask it. Where is, where is my battle? Where am I fighting? Where am I struggling to obey? Where am I struggling to believe? Where, where am I struggling to fight against false gods? Where, where am I making false gods instead of turning to God by faith? Where, where, are you feel, where do you feel like you're losing ground in the battle? Maybe there's a recurring temptation, a recurring sin in your life, and you're thinking, I cannot believe I'm still struggling with this, and I'm embarrassed and ashamed that this is still an issue for me. Maybe there's a new area of sin that you weren't even aware of, and now it's becoming clear that that's a, it's a problem area in your life, and you're thinking, what? I, I thought I was past this. I thought I was not going to have to deal with this kind of thing anymore, and yet here I am realizing I'm struggling again with idolatry, and the world the, in rebellion against God is like winning in this moment. You've you got to know where you're battling. But you also have to know this. Your victory today is anchored in Christ. It's faith in a sure Savior leads to sure victory. 
This means, in practical terms, that faith will lead us in what he just talked about in the previous section, obeying God's commands. Did you know that? Faith is the engine, right, that drives the train of obedience. Faith is, is the, it's the, it's the driving force, the motivator for choosing to honor God in our behavior and saying no to temptation, having that victory. Faith, they're the horses, okay, the horses are faith and the cart is obedience, right? And so faith has to go first. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, the apostle Paul praises God for the Thessalonians and their, their, their transformed lives. And one of the phrases he uses is he says, I, I pray and I thank God for your work motivated by faith. That's how he phrases it. Your work motivated by faith. Your work, your evidence that is a result of your faith. And here's the interesting thing in 1 John. We've seen all of these moments where John says, this is, how you, this is a sign you will know that you are indeed a Christian. You'll love one another right? There'll be a transformation. You'll walk in the light. But that, that evidence is not actually the cause of our salvation. The cause of our salvation is the Son of God. And so, because we have a sure Savior, we have sure victory. How does it work then? Well, faith, faith in the Son of God frees us from slavery to self-righteousness, I'm telling you, there's a constant struggle in the battle, right? So you're feeling temptation, and your your gut instinct might be, right? It might be, I've got to try harder. I'm going to win this battle by trying harder, and I'm going to white-knuckle this, and I'm going to get up earlier, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to make, and then I will be acceptable to God, and then I'll do better. And can I just, can I just encourage you that that is not, that is not what God calls us to, in the sense of, of godly effort in our lives, that is a self-focused self-righteousness that will only leave you either arrogant on days you succeed or devastated on days you fail. We're free from that. You have victory. You're the one who conquers. Why? By faith in the Son of God, not by virtue of you trying harder. So we're freed from, the, from slavery to self-righteousness. But we're also freed from slavery to self-pity. Now, if the self-righteous person says, I can do it, right? They've seen, you know, Rudy like too many times. They're like, I, I can do it, right? That's that person. Uh, this person says, I can't do it. I could never do it. This person is in despair because they see their sin and instead of trying hard, they're just overwhelmed with guilt. They're overwhelmed with shame. They're overwhelmed with, with that sense of kind of hopelessness, right? And maybe they're punishing themselves for the wrong. They're like, God's right to judge me and I, you know, woe is me and all that. And they're kind of stuck in that dark cave. But again, the one who conquers is not the one, right, who can uh, actually transform themselves and say, now I can do it. And they're not the one who just sits in a cave in the dark, but they're the one who actually, by faith in the Son of God, they're declared clean. They're declared not guilty. Their shame is removed. And even though they feel that, right, there's a challenge there to actually experience the victory that we already have in Christ. They would love to hide from this battle. And yet, in Christ, we have victory. So we can come out, all right? We can come out of that cave. And even though, yes, we acknowledge that we have failed, we look to Jesus, who is, as we sang, our sure and steady anchor. And it's by faith in the Son of God we have victory. So it frees us from self-pity. It frees us from self-righteousness. Now, how can we be sure, though? Watch verse 6 as the Apostle John continues. The rhetorical question in verse 5, who is one who conquers every day of the world? Well, it's the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God, or, you know, it's, it's definitely that person. 
Well, as he says, son of God, in verse 5, in verse 6, he then kind of clarifies, it's Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who died for our sins and rose from the dead, just in case we're confused about who the Son of God is. And this is all linked to the doctrinal attack that John was, uh, you know, defending the church from that said that Jesus didn't take on flesh and he wasn't really God in the flesh and all of that. So there's a, you know, kind of that was the teaching of, of, the, uh, of the proto-gnostics of his day. And so he says, just so we're really clear on this, the Son of God, the divine Son of God is indeed Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who actually walked around on earth. More on that in a minute. So he says, Jesus Christ, that's the son of God. And by the way, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. Now let's unpack this because this can be confusing. Once we kind of get our uh, beat on the water and the blood though, it becomes very clear. The reference to water here, Jesus coming by water, it's a reference to Jesus's baptism. I don't know if you remember, but Jesus, at the start of his earthly ministry, he goes down to visit his cousin, John the baptizer, and he has John baptize him, okay? Now, this is a little bit weird, because if you remember about baptism, John's message was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent of your sins and be baptized. Repent as an acknowledgement of your sin. And even in the gospel message, as Jesus commands the apostles to go out and baptize followers of Jesus, if someone believes the gospel, they, they are baptized as a, a symbol, as a kind of a, an expression of that faith that shows that they identify with Jesus' death by being, uh, you know, going under the water, like being buried with Jesus, and then Jesus' resurrection by coming out of the water. There's that identification there. And, and so there's acknowledgement that I needed to be cleaned, and I was cleansed by faith in Jesus, by faith in the Son of God. So we need to be baptized as a sign that we were dirty and now we are clean because of the gospel. But Jesus had nothing to repent of. Jesus didn't need to be, he didn't need to be baptized in that sense. So why did he come by water? Why was he baptized? Jesus was baptized for two reasons. One, to show that he agreed with the message of John the baptizer. Kingdom of heaven is here. You should repent. But secondly, Jesus was baptized in solidarity with all those who would believe the message. Jesus is saying, by his humanity there, he's saying, I am with you. And although he didn't need to be baptized because he didn't have sin to repent of, in that sense, he was baptized to say, I am with you. I am your representative. I have come for you. He came by water with the baptism, the beginning of his ministry, and he came by blood. Of course, blood here is shorthand for Jesus' death on our behalf and his resurrection. Jesus didn't just identify with us in his baptism. He also represented us in his death on the cross. So he, he shed his blood for us to pay the penalty for our sin, to rescue and redeem us. And he, he didn't stay dead Right? He rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death and Satan and he has provided the basis of victory. So when John's saying here, the one who conquers, they, they conquer not by self-righteousness or not because of getting stuck in self-pity or fixing that or whatever, but we conquer by faith in the Son of God. It's what the Son of God has done for us. It's Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He came by water and by blood. He came and identified with us in his baptism and he came and stood for us and died for us in the, in the 
the crucifixion and he rose for us with the resurrection. And so as John declares this, he's basically anchoring our confidence, our victory in the work of Jesus on our behalf. And get the end of verse six. He goes on, right, the end of the verse, and he says, and it's the Spirit, capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies to this because the Spirit is truth. John says, just in case we needed confirmation that this is real, the Spirit of God has testified primarily in the objective message of the gospel as inscripturated for us, as preserved for us in the Bible. But we experience that testimony as we read and respond to the message. So as the Spirit works in us, we hear the testimony of the apostles, and we agree with the message. And so there's confirmation by God, right, by His Spirit, there's confirmation that this is true And it is reliable that Jesus Christ came by water and by blood. Notice he goes on in verse 7 and 8. For there are three that testify. And some of your older Bibles, the King Jimmy especially, has an added line there in verse 7. Okay, Uh, that that was a scribal note that kind of was incorporated into some manuscripts. It's not supposed to be there. So uh, every modern Bible excludes that line in verse 7 and rightly so. But there are three that testify. What are the three? Verse 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So the spirit testifies about the content of the gospel, right? And that agrees with Jesus' declaration at his baptism and then agrees with his, his acts on our behalf and his death and resurrection. So these three are in agreement. Now pause. In case you didn't do your devotions at Deuteronomy 19.15 this morning, I just want to remind you that in the Old Testament law, there's a requirement that if there's going to be a conviction of a murder, there has to be at least two witnesses, two trustworthy witnesses. How many does John give us? Do the math. Three, right? We've got three. He says, you need two, I'll give you three. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Those three witnesses are in absolute agreement that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament that he identified with us in his life, that he represented us in his death, and he conquered death and resurrection. So he goes on to verse 9. If we accept human testimony, like we would in a court of law, or video testimony on somebody's phone if there's an issue or whatever, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. More reliable is the idea. God's testimony is greater Why? Because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. Have you figured out yet that our victory, it's not so much about our performance as it is about the son of God? That's what John is doing here. It's kind of interesting because in the book as a whole, he's been saying, you can't just say you believe and have your life not match that. So we got there's no divorcing, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and then living a, a transformed life. Those two have to go together. But he wants to be careful and just say, just so we're clear though, your performance is not the basis of your victory. Our victory in this battle that we are in every day is on the basis of Jesus, the Son of God. It's because of the water and the blood that we are victorious. And it's the Spirit of God himself who testifies and says, this is true. You ever have one of those friends that's like, everything they tell you, you have to take with a grain of salt, you know? Like, take my word for it. And you're like, nope, I've known you too long. That ain't happening. Google it, Google it, right? Because it's like, I don't, you know, I just don't know, right? And John's basically saying here, we get that about humanity. And even though that's the case with humans, sometimes we don't get it right. We accept human testimony in the court of law. And John says, God's testimony is greater And his testimony is about the son. 
So we are anchoring our hope. We are confident of our victory and we step forward in faith in the battle, not because we're convinced we can do it or not because someone else can fix it for us, but because of the Son of God, because of the water and the blood, and because God testifies by his Spirit that this gospel is sure and reliable. So our victory, right, our victory rests solely on God's faithfulness. That is such an important concept for us to to own as believers. Our victory spiritually rests solely on God's faithfulness. So there's a day when you might ask, you might be struggling, and you say, am I forgiven? And we might be tempted to answer that question, am I forgiven? We would say, well, did I obey? But that's that's not the right way to come at it. We don't ask, did I obey? We ask, did Jesus die for my sins and rise from the dead? We might wonder, am I going to be welcomed into God's presence when I die? Am I going to be ushered into his presence? Am I going to be with the saints when I die? We don't ask, did I perform well? We don't ask, did I, did I have a good church record? Did I, did I give a lot of money to good causes? We ask, did Jesus die for my sins and rise from the dead? Because of the water and the blood, we can be confident. We might ask, what if I fail? At that point, John would say, see chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's, our, that's the basis of our confidence in the battle. That's the basis of our guarantee of victory. You might think of the Apostle Paul here in Romans 8, 37, who strikes a similar note when he says, no, in all these things, difficult circumstances, though they may be, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through not my obedience, not through my church going to bat for me, but through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors because of Jesus. And then Paul goes on, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, when Paul makes that statement, he's saying you can be confident because God's love is secure because of the water and the blood. My friend C.E.B. Cranfield, he said this, he said, It's not by our hold on Jesus but by his hold on us that we are more than conquerors. It's not by our hold on him, but it's his hold on us. You know, many of us have had uh, the joy, the privilege of parenting small humans. Um, Maybe you have grandchildren. Maybe you look forward to this day. But if you've ever crossed a street with a tiny human or like been in a Costco or Target or Chipotle parking lot with a tiny human, right? Um, there's always that like moment of danger there where it's like you have to cross the street with the tiny human. So, you, you know, there's a deal. You're going to keep them safe. So what's, what do you do with the tiny human? We hold, you can say it. It's okay. You're not going to die. We, we hold hands, right? So we hold hands. The safety of that tiny human does not depend on their ability to hold your hand. If it did, there'd be far fewer tiny humans, <laughs> right? Because how many times was I across the street with my littles and it was not their hold on me, but it was my hold on them, yanking them to and fro to keep them safe, right? That's, that is why they were safe. It's because of my hold on them. Can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, that's us. We're those tiny little people. And when we're looking for confidence and assurance 
It's not based on our ability to cling to God or our ability to do better or our ability to fix ourselves up. Yes, a transformed life is a must, right? But that's not the basis of our confidence. Our confidence is in God's hold on us. It's it's confidence based on the water and the blood that Jesus is for us and that the victory has been won. And so we conquer continuously because we have faith in the Son of God. Our victory rests solely on God's faithfulness. So guess what? We don't have to be afraid. Now in this last section here, watch how John kind of turns the corner and addresses. He, he both warns and he encourages. So we'll, we'll kind of hear it in both, both senses here. But watch verse 10. He encourages here, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. Just pause there. So the believer has the testimony of God reverberating in their soul. And sometimes we forget, and sometimes we're deaf to it, and so we need reminders. That's what this letter is. It's a reminder. But you got to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells you, and you have this testimony every day. Testimony about what? About the water and the blood. That Jesus identifies with you and he represented you on the cross and he rose from the dead. And so you have that victory. It's not that you might have it, it's that you do have it in Christ. So that's what he says at the beginning of verse 10. Comfort for the believer. You have this victory. The one who believes in the Son of God. By the way, Son of God, Son of God. We've heard it multiple times. We'll get it seven times in just this paragraph before we're done this morning. Why? Because our hope is anchored in the eternal Son of God, Jesus. And it's a function of Jesus' divine sonship that we can be confident, right, spiritually. We can experience victory. So the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. But the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. So for those who reject the gospel, for those who say no to Jesus, they're saying no to the testimony of the Spirit of God. They're saying Jesus does not identify with me in his baptism. He did not die in my place, and he did not rise from the dead so that I can be forgiven. So that person says God, who testifies about this by the Spirit, God is a liar. Where is God a liar? That person would say the Bible is a lie, fundamentally. That's why it's, you know, it's so interesting, people's approach to the Bible, it's... it's, it's it can be very revealing because people will say, oh, the Bible is a beautiful book and it's inspired literature and all those things. The Bible is a beautiful book and it is inspired literature, literally, right? But, uh, but what those people will often say is, but I, I cannot affirm what it says. I cannot believe what it says. And what they're saying is the Bible is pretty, but God has lied to us in it. It's not accurate. And how do we, how do we know they believe that? Because they refuse to believe the gospel. And so John says they're calling God a liar. Now, he's, he's primarily probably focusing on those who have bought this false teaching and they've kind of separated out Jesus' uh, heavenly identity from his incarnation and all that. And they've denied the gospel that Jesus did really die. And so for those who deny Jesus, that he's the Messiah who died for our sins and rose from the dead, they call God a liar by their unbelief. When John makes that very clear at the end of the verse, he says, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given about his son. God gave testimony in court through the Spirit. And they said, nope, that testimony is false by the virtue of their unbelief. What is the testimony? Verse 11. It's actually about the benefits of the water and the blood. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Does that sound familiar to any other famous verse that we may have referenced earlier in the worship service, right? 
is John 3.16. The apostle John here still has this concept of by coming into the world in rebellion against God and dying in our place, Jesus has made possible for us the gift of eternal life, which is, as we've said many times, it's not so much about the quantity of life, it's about the quality of that life. We have life in Christ. We have it. Not eternal death, not condemnation, right? Not judgment, but we have life in Christ. That's the, that is the, the fruit of the testimony of God. This is what the testimony actually results in. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life by the Son of God, and this life is in his Son. Which, of course, also means that there is no life outside of his Son. John's saying, when you reject the testimony of God, and therefore you re- reject the Son of God, there's no life for you. You don't have it. Watch, he goes on in verse 12, on that same note. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, he uses this, the, the language of ownership, who has the Son. That's really synonymous here with faith, the one who's believed. But why does he use that terminology? Because he wants you to know that if you have faith in Jesus, you have, and it cannot be taken from you, eternal life. It's yours. So the one who has the Son, who's believed in the Son, that person has life. Right now, you have that gift, and no one can take it from you. You are in possession of it because of Christ. By contrast, the one who does not have the Son of God, who does not believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, and Jesus is uh, God in the flesh, right? That the one who does not believe that does not have life. So it's an either-or in this instance. And it functions as a warning, obviously, to unbelievers. There's just a note there. And maybe you're hearing this message and you are not a follower of Jesus. And there's love and grace in God for you. But you've got to know that if you refuse to trust Christ, there is no life for you. That you're on your own. But the one who has the Son has life. So there's a call here, right? Don't be the ones that reject the Son. Turn to the Son. Grab onto that Son. Believe the testimony of God. Agree that Jesus came by water and by blood, that he, that he identified with us in his baptism and he stood in our place in his crucifixion and he rose for us from the dead. Believe that and have the gift of eternal life that cannot be taken from you. It's a warning here, but it's also an encouragement. Because back to the battle, right? We're going to struggle. And so John says, I don't, I don't want to leave you with this idea that your salvation depends on your performance. And so that leads to verse 13. Notice how he, he, and again, this is kind of a transitional statement, but watch what he says in verse 13. John says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, seventh time. Why? So that you may know you have eternal life. There's a big, we've discussed it, but there's a big conversation in, in the church amongst believers about what is the basis of, the, of our confidence that we are forgiven. And in 1 John, right, he has said a lot of things about what the Christian life should be, that we should be walking in the light, that, that we should be loving one another with this radical divine love, right, that, that we're changed, that we're different. And so we have this different trajectory that, that we're walking as believers. And so that is, that is a way to see there's evidence that, yes, I have indeed believed. But he says, at the end of the day, to know that you have eternal life for those who believed, to know that you are forgiven, to know that you are indeed a Christian. He says, you can know that. And he says, it's because of the water and the blood. 
That is the basis of our assurance. And there should be evidence that follows it. And when there's not evidence, we are concerned. But what we never conclude is, I'm accepted by God because I did good things. Or, I have failed, and so I must do more good things to make up for that. Our confidence of our spiritual standing before God is based on the sure hope we have in Christ. We can, you got to know this, we can be sure we are safe in Christ. You know, back during the Reformation in the 16th century, this was a big, big issue because the Roman Catholic Church had taught very clearly that there was no basis for assurance. You could never really be sure of your standing. And so you had to keep coming to the priest. You had to keep doing penance. And even then you were headed to purgatory and we'll see how it goes, right? That kind of a thing. And the, the reformers, based on reading the Bible, they were saying, actually, you can know. Where did they get that idea? Well, I've got a hunch. First John 5.13 was one of the places. They said, you can know. And when you're in the battle and you're faced with your own sin and your own ugliness, right? When you're feeling that, you might get discouraged. You might doubt. Am I even a Christian? You might struggle. And John wants to encourage you this morning that the Spirit of God has testified that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And so you can be sure, brothers and sisters, you can be sure if you've put your faith in Jesus that you are safe in Christ. You can be sure you are safe in Christ. So we don't have to fear, right? We don't have to fear death because we have life in Christ. We don't have to fear car accidents. We don't have to fear a cancer diagnosis. We don't have to fear coronavirus. We don't have to fear anything else that starts with the letter C. I don't know. It's all I could come up with the letter C. But I mean, there's all kinds of things we're scared of, right? But we don't have to, be, we don't have to fear death. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Like he's the source of my protection. And in Christ, that's what we have. He is our fortress. We are safe in him. So John says, I write these things. Those of you who believe, I'm writing these things so that you can know. Like if you know, you know. If you know Jesus, then you know you are safe. If you know Jesus, then you know you are forgiven. If you know Jesus, you know you are in the family. And you will need that encouragement because you cannot escape the battle. And there's going to be a day when you struggle. We don't have to have anxiety over our spiritual state. Why? Because, because of the water and the blood. Because the Son of God took on flesh for us. You're going to need that encouragement. You're going to need it because we will struggle in the battle. I don't know if you watched much of the Olympics this last time around, but there was one particular race. It was uh, the, the women's 1,500-meter semis where a, a Dutch runner whose name I cannot pronounce, um, she's, she was the favorite to win. Sivan Hassan was her name. Anyway, uh, she was the favorite to win the final. This is the semi, right? So she's, gotta, she's just got to qualify, and then she gets the race, and then she's going to demolish everybody in the race. So the semi is a formality for someone of her standing. And uh, they start the race... And early on in the race, tragically, she falls. She goes down. Now, just imagine, right? You've trained for five years, in this case, right, for this race. And you've, everything's based on getting, getting that medal, performing well, right? And, she, and she, she gets there, and she falls. And you think about the heartache. Like, there it goes. Or the sense of shame and defeat. I failed. I blew it. 
well, I can't believe this was my one shot, right? And, I've, and you think just sitting there and bawling your eyes out and just, you think about how demoralizing that would be, how discouraging it would be, how disappointed you would be. I wonder, have you fallen? Maybe it's a regular battle with particular sin, anger, bitterness, you can't shake it. Fear, anxiety, constantly plaguing you. Self-centeredness, right? It's always just about you. Pride. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's gossip, right? I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's greed. Whatever it, whatever it is, right? Maybe we've fallen. And there's this moment where like you're sitting there and it's, oh, woe is me. Oh, I've blown it. Oh, this never, there's no chance or whatever. But I would encourage you to do what this runner did. She didn't sit there and cry. She didn't wallow on the track. She didn't point fingers at the person that may have tripped her up. She got up. And she kept running. And it turns out she's really fast. <laughs> so she, she ran. And by the end of the 1,500 meters, she was in first place. In the gold medal race, the cameraman lost sight of her. She was so far ahead of everybody. They were like, there was a Dutch runner here. We don't know. Oh, she's having ice cream. She already finished. Like, that's how fast it was. She didn't, she didn't let the fall, she didn't let her fall, she didn't let her failure, that, that discouragement overcome her. She got up and she ran. And brothers and sisters, can I encourage you? I guarantee you, because we're in a battle, you will fall, right? That is going to happen. What should we do? Get up and run. Go. Why? Because you are safe in Christ. Because of the water and the blood, you don't have to wallow in it. You don't have to sit there and just feel defeated. You get up, you confess that sin. I've sinned. You repent, you turn from that sin, and you go. And by faith in the Son of God, you have victory today, right, because of what he has done for you. And so we have this freedom to not, to not focus on our performance and to not be derailed when we fail, but to freedom to get up and to run for Christ, to just go. And I, I think... That freedom enables us then to trust Jesus all the more. Because guess what? He's done the heavy lifting for us and he's paved the way. So I don't know where your struggle is. I don't know what is going to trip you up. Something will. But I do know this. Because we're safe in Christ, because faith in our sure Savior leads to sure victory, we can get up and run. He has got us. We're safe because of the water and the blood. Let's pray together and we'll ask God to help us live this life of confident assurance in Christ. Lord, once again, we pause this morning and we thank you for these words of comfort and encouragement as well as warning here in 1 John 5. Lord, we thank you that we continuously have this victory over the world because of Jesus. We thank you that because of the water and the blood, Lord Jesus, because you were baptized in solidarity with us and because you died for us and you rose from the dead, that we are confident and we can be confident every day in our spiritual state. Lord, I pray for those who have refused to believe the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would break down their pride, that you would build them up in their shame and discouragement and that they would see clearly your love for them. And they would, they would know this morning that they can be forgiven and they can have eternal life because of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we walk in the battle, 
as we struggle to obey your commands. And Lord, we, we fail. We give in a temptation and we struggle with idolatry. We confess that. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we run to self-pity or self-righteousness. But Lord, we ask that you would give us, by your Spirit, confidence in your testimony. Lord, that we would know that we for sure are forgiven, not because of our performance, but because of what you have done for us. And Lord, may that confidence now equip us to walk by faith this very day. Lord, that we would be transformed and that we would know that we, are, we belong to you because of your, your love for us as we see it in Christ. Lord, convince us we are safe. We, we worry about a lot. We struggle. Lord, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity this morning for you to help us to be comforted because of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our sure anchor, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.